This is John Deke with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers, which is a program of the New York Philharmonic. Music we've been listening to is by Mac Skokaho, who wrote this piece and orchestrated it when he was 12, and it's called Oceant Rose. How did this music come about? Well, we're exploring the background of just how it happened. This is scene 20, finally, an epiphany in Brooklyn. Events were crowding together starting around 1990, starting with the births of our three children, of course, and also the composing. I was beginning to feel I was on a roll and wanted to keep going. The Philharmonic had just commissioned me to write a full orchestra piece to be performed on a young people's concert scheduled exactly on the 150th anniversary of the Philharmonic's historic first concert, which was December 7th, 1842. I had two years to research and develop a script which I dearly wanted to reflect that first event. I couldn't have been more proud to have a role in the observance of our sesquicentennial. Just think, from being in awe and transfixed in the 1950s as a kid in rural Indiana hearing the Philharmonic on its omnibus broadcasts, and then through all that studying of music, to becoming a member of the orchestra, to composing for it, and now representing it creatively on its 150th anniversary? Whoa, my head was swimming. Was I really up to doing this? I don't know. I knew at least enough to get help from the right places. First stop, our archivist, Barbara Hawes. What was it like at that first concert conducted by our founder, Urelli Corelli Hill? Oh my goodness, he actually sailed to Europe to study with Felix Mendelssohn? And the musicians of the New York Philharmonic, did they really put on white gloves to serve as ushers to seat the audience before rushing back to get their instruments ready for that first concert? So many fascinating details. I began to think of fashioning a script, a sort of historical fiction, based on the facts and events of that era. One of my favorite folktales was about Mose the fireman. He was sort of New York City's version of Paul Bunyan, late in the 1840s, back in the 1840s, heroically saving people and babies from burning buildings. Hmm. So what was it actually like living in those days? Next stop, the New York Historical Society. They were just in the process of digitizing all their materials and records. I talked with the librarian about my project, and she took an interest right away. We still haven't digitized all our newspapers of that era, but if you'd like to look through the originals, I can give you a pair of special gloves to handle the newspapers of that year. Whoa! I felt so privileged. I spent hours, even days, looking delicately through those newspapers and any histories of those days, and sure enough, there it was. A notice of a concert to be given at the Apollo Rooms, 7th December, 1842. They were to start the concert with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, no less. What an opening! There were also frequent notices mentioning fires which occurred throughout the city. Hmm, must have been frightening to live in those days. No mention of Mose, the fireman, and no direct mention of any of the Philharmonic members being volunteer firemen, but it would have been surprising if there had not been, right? So, what if... 
there were a fire nearby, let's say, which had just broken out during that first concert, and what if some of the members of the Philharmonic were volunteers? Ah, I was on my way. The libretto and the music flowed easily. I was encouraged by Kurt Mazur and Deborah Borda to do the narrating myself. I was so proud at the performance, and the orchestra played beautifully under Mazur. The orchestra and audience cheered, and more importantly, the kids in the audience really seemed to get it. There were so many more stories connected with that day, but this was not at all, all everything that was going on. To step back just a few years to about 1985, I was to coach an ensemble performing my Ugly Duckling. It was made up of really fine players and a wonderful soprano, Ida Fiella. The two violins were Barry Finclair, a member of the Philharmonic's first violin section, Barry had been a child prodigy and had appeared on LB's Young People's Concerts as a 10-year-old soloist. Imagine that! Impressive. Playing second violin to Barry was a young woman named Marin Alsop, also a fine violinist. I hadn't known Marin at that time, except to hear that she was forming an all-female chamber jazz ensemble that, that Jackie was, be, was to be playing in. Anyway, rehearsals for the Duckling were few, and we were pressed for time. Things were not going well. Disagreements were flaring up more and more. Though brilliant, Barry had a rather argumentative and con confrontational style. There were internal problems which I couldn't handle. Time was running out. Marin put her fiddle down and raised her hand. John? Would you mind if I just took over the rehearsal at this point? I'd be delighted, I answered. Go ahead. And almost instantly, she took the group in hand. She pointed out errors here and there, how to correct them, and before anyone could object, she gave the next downbeat and the next, and so on. It was amazing to watch. It was as if I were attending the birth of a new superstar. Almost needless to say, the group gelled and the performance was glorious. In the succeeding years, Marin quickly did become a celebrity of a conductor. She kept me busy with two big commissions which resulted in works for the Long Island Philharmonic and her Concordia Orchestra. The works were entitled The Snow Queen and The Legend of Spite and Dival. Both works involved her turning around to the audience from time to time, narrating the story behind the music, and both works were successfully reviewed and often performed by other orchestras. But I must mention once again the other person who was also a brilliant conductor, leader, and organizer who was supportive of my work, as I'd mentioned, Christopher Kendall, the conductor of the 20th century consort, and now, of course, the 21st century consort. We were to celebrate on close to maybe 20 chamber works over the decade and beyond. He and his performers, selected from the National Symphony, have become close to my heart. They also appeared with the orchestra as I was commissioned two times by the National Symphony for works conducted by the music director of the time, Slava Rostropovich, no less. If you want to imagine a rollicking good time with lots of bear hugs, try working with Slava, as he was called, I miss him greatly. <clears throat> the legendary bassist, Hal Robinson, was the soloist in my contrabass concerto based on the tale Jack and the Beanstalk, which got standing ovations. 
Again, I mention these works to point out that they are all based on folk, fairy, or children's tales. I aimed to tell these stories musically in a way that I naturally felt as a child talking to an adult. Now we come to the moment of the revelation which this whole reflective narrative has been leading to. Okay, it happened like this. Marin and I, now working together quite often, had been hired to do a presentation working with kids in a Brooklyn school, and I believe the euphemism was underserved. After doing our usual demonstration of our instruments, I had had the idea to assign the kids to write a little story based on the sentence, quote, I woke up this morning and something was very different, unquote. The class went well, and we got some profound, beautiful stories. In fact, a girl named Michelle wrote one which I did wind up writing for orchestra, The Broccoli Beast of Bedford Avenue. But the epiphany, which was to change my life, was not that. It simply occurred as Marin and I were walking back and forth from class. On the walls were children's art, and I mean young children, like first or second graders, the paintings were mostly freeform, some figurative, and none were realistic. They were flamboyant, as I've seen many times in the past, at an age before they could, quote, learn how to paint, unquote. We were walking, hardly paying attention until, hey, Marin, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come here, look at this painting by a five-year-old. Doesn't that look like a Kandinsky? And look at the details, and this one, de Kooning. And that one, with all, with all the little lines, Paul Clay for sure. We've known this about children's art for years. They've influenced all these great 20th century artists. They admit it themselves. It's common knowledge. So, why can't children compose music like this? And there you have it, the core of the idea. The fundamental question asked forcefully before all the usual objections would come flying. Oh, children can't compose music unless they're little geniuses. They can't even find middle C. They can't play an instrument, let alone orchestrate. They couldn't even put a quarter note on a staff. How can you expect an ordinary child to compose anything more than singing Mary Had a Little Lamb? I knew all the objections by heart. I'd even repeated them myself. Hey, you know, just a transparency here. But now I was really on a roll. I had a mission. I knew somehow that children could create music, even orchestrate real music, beautiful, joyous, sad, horrid, silly, pop, jazz, hip-hop, classical music, or a music that's never been heard. I had no idea just how it could be done. After all, music is a performing art which requires intricate communication between composer and performer. I mean, look who you're talking to here. But then, how on earth can you expect this to be done? Again, I had really no idea. I only somehow knew that it could be done beautifully, unexpectedly, and with flair. All we had to do was reach the child before they are told they can't do this, before they are told, who do you think you are, Picasso? But as, as, as I've said before, it was Picasso's own words. All children are born artists. The problem is remaining one. The problem actually was that we never simply trusted the child or listened deeply to them. Well, 
So, the big idea. <laughs> big deal. Lots of people have ideas. How many build a system around the idea, test it out, and put it into practice? You're going to have to prove this thing over and over and over again, Deke, because there's going to be resistance to it, disbelief. And so I did just sit on this idea for a while, but Marin was interested. She seemed comfortable with my wacky style of composing with narrative tales. I proposed the idea of a residency with her newly appointed directorship of the Colorado Symphony. She would support the idea, but I had to find the funding. I thought of John Duffy's innovative Meet the Composer program of residencies. The residencies were three-year programs in which the composer wrote music for a major symphony and served as an advocate for new music in general. The grants went to major composers like John Corleano, Chris Rouse, Charles Warren, and John Adams. I was not yet in that category, not yet a major composer. On top of that, I'd seen residencies and was not so eager to sift through hundreds of submitted scores and to advocate so constantly for myself, my own damn career. But I had an idea. I submitted a proposal to meet the composer based somewhat on my own music, but primarily to work in the Denver public schools to encourage children's creativity and bring that back to the Colorado Symphony. My submission, among hundreds, evidently sparked interest because John wanted to talk to me personally. He and Fran Richard of ASCAP heard recordings of my works and were pleased, but they wanted to know how I intended to get kids to be creative. I met John at the nearby watering hole, then called O'Neill's on 64th Street. I told him I thought grade school kids could compose for the symphony orchestra. After he rolled his eyes, he asked how that could possibly be. I answered, I didn't really know. And that was the reason I wanted to get support to try it out. By that time, I was aware that the problem of notation could be dealt with by the composer Mentor. By then, I was hearing from Eric Booth, who was innovating the newly organized educational approach using the title Teaching Artist. As for instrumentation, I told John, we could accomplish that by interactive instrument demos where the child would hear the different textures and ask the instrumentalist to play whatever sounds, images, or melodies they, the child, wanted instead of the musician just instructing how their instrument should be used. I still had no idea if this would work. As for harmony, rhythm, I hadn't really worked out the plan yet. I only knew that it had to be instinctive and not didactic. The teaching artist would basically ask questions rather than provide correct answers. But before I could even wait for a decision from MTC, Meet the Composer, I had a huge problem. How could I handle such a three-year commitment as this without losing my position at the Philharmonic? After all, I had a family to help feed now. This is where Deborah Borda and Kurt Mazur came in. I explained to them about my idea and compared it to the opening of a Broadway show. In other words, one doesn't open right on Broadway. One tests the idea first, or the play, or the musical, or whatever, in Hartford or Albany, in this case, Denver. My little presentation seemed to be received favorably, and it was primarily Deborah who came up with the idea 
of allowing me a one-year's unpaid leave of absence to be spread out over three years since the residency required my presence for about 20 weeks per season. So I was to spend two or three weeks there and then two or three weeks back at the Philharmonic. Plus, I was expected to do some fundraising events and concert talks for the Philharmonic. Whew! A tall order. But there was no turning back now because Meet the Composer was convinced and offered me the residency. Marin was ready to go with it in her, in her usual wry style. John will be joined at the hip now. Ha! But it was actually to be true. I was going to Denver 